0: Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets.
1: Thanks, Sam. So, quick disclaimer. Um, there, maybe a spoiler alert even. There is a really cheesy sermon illustration And I have prepared for you, so I'll let you know whenever we get there, but um, actually, I won't have to. You'll know. You'll be like, yes, that's really cheesy, Chaz. Um, But uh, I actually want to begin by priming you all with an idea um, that's going to be important for us and that um, we'll actually come back explicitly towards the end of our time. um, But for now, I'm just going to kind of say it without explaining anything and then move on. But again, we will come back to it um, before we're through. (coughs) Steve Cuss, the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety, writes this. He writes, Differentiation is the ability to be fully yourself while being fully connected to people. It is gaining clarity on where I end and the other begins. Differentiated person allows space between herself and another, even when that other person is highly anxious or asking for rescue. The differentiated person is clear on her own values and convictions and is not easily swayed from them. So again, not going to say much more about that just yet, but just wanted to prime you all with that thought. Um, the famous Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky is most well known for his huge novel, *The Brothers Karats- Karamazov*. Um, how many of you all have read that at some point? It's his best novel. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Brother's Case truly is best known. Crime and Punishment is probably his most well-read because they assign it in high school and college sometimes. Um, However, I don't want to quote from either one of those. Um, I actually want to mention today um, his shortest work, or not shortest, but one of his shorter works, uh, a book called Notes from the Underground. And in this short novella, we are introduced to a nameless man. You never never hear the man's name. He never tells you. Most um, people, scholars, people that read the book, just kind of refer to him as the underground man. Um, the novella is essentially, it's a mixture of like kind of journal writings and narrative retellings of this man's life through his own eyes, based on his memory, which turns out to be more or less true or false, as the case may be. And the novel begins with these words, um it's just what I wanted to draw our attention to. Am I touching something? Is that just my shirt? Sorry about that. It begins like this, he writes, I am a sick man, I am a spiteful man, I am an unpleasant man. I think my liver is diseased. However, I don't know beans about my disease, and I'm not even sure what is bothering me. I don't treat it, never have, no. I refuse to treat it out of spite. The only reason I mention this to you is because I recently read this in a class. Uh, for school and it really caught my attention and it was very timely and relevant, um, the whole novel is in fact, to what we've been talking about all fall. Um, uh, as we've looked at Jesus' famous sermon on the mount. Because the underground man is riddled with anxiety. When you read the book, you come to learn um, that he is just filled with hypochondriaism and plagued by dis-ease. So we can take that word dis-ease. Turmoil, narcissism, pride. He ends up being a walking contradiction. He condemns others for faults, which he himself possesses ten times over. He is overconfident, yet remains a coward. He is certain, yet clueless. He is paradigmatically passive-aggressive. He is thoughtless, yet he tends to overthink everything. Thus, he is suspicious, paranoid, constantly insecure, self-absorbed. He lacks perspective and imagination. He is scrupulous to a fault, stubborn, judgmental, vengeful, full of spite. He overreacts to the most petty offenses. He is determined to assert himself in the world, yet he spends most of his life stuck up in his head, trapped in his own schizophrenic dialogue with himself, ruminating on how others have injured him and how they, not him, are the cause of all his problems. He never sees himself as the villain, not once. He only sees himself as the victim, always and forever. Thus, the underground man shot through with anxiety. And this is precisely why he is the underground man. He has no awareness of himself whatsoever, of what is actually going on within him, of what, as we've said over the last several weeks, of what is going on just below the surface of his thoughts, of his deeds. He does not understand himself and cannot make sense of what drives him or motivates him, what causes him to act and react the way that he does. He cannot see himself clearly because he lacks self-awareness. He is an absurdity. He takes too much responsibility for that which he should not and takes no responsibility for the very things he should. So remember the quote that Jeremy began this series with Um, back in September, as we started this look at the Sermon on the Mount from James Thurber. All people should strive to learn, before they die, what they are running from, and to, and why. I think it's safe to say, you can read the novel for yourself, um, but the underground man never figures this out. And by the way, just kind of putting it back in the context of today, um, Dostoevsky's novel is probably brilliant, if for nothing else, for this reason. Um, You read the book, you encounter this, just utterly disgusting character who you immediately dislike and find rather unbearable, and you go about judging him, just like our sermon text um, kind of mentioned today. But then you kind of notice in certain moments, you read along and you realize against your, like, no matter what, as, as much, whether you like it or not, you actually start to see yourself in this person a little bit. And so you realize the two of you aren't that different after all. He's just an exaggerated caricature. He's, you know, a character in a novel. But here's the rub. If you don't see anything of yourself in this character as you're reading through this novel, it is actually then for precisely that reason that you are, in fact, just like um, the underground man. Because he is the kind of person who would not see himself in himself whatsoever. And so if you've been reading um, Stephen Cuss's book that we quoted from just a moment ago, Um, you'll recognize this as a double bind. No matter what you do, you lose. Either you see yourself in the the underground man, and you're like him, or you don't, and you're like him. So that hopefully makes it kind of make a little more sense regarding our sermon text this afternoon. I say all this really, though, just as a kind of reminder um, about how we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount these past several weeks, namely as it relates to what we've called a kind of anxiety that which lies just below the surface of our conscious awareness. Underground, what drives us, motivates us, causes us us to react or respond in certain ways to life and those whom we share it with. We've also discussed how anxiety tends to be contagious. We bring it into us, or we bring it with us into relationships, into, as we talked about a few weeks ago, those granular collisions which make up our daily interactions. And unless we deal with our own anxiety, we tend to share it with those around us. Unless someone is willing to clear the air, anxiety tends to pollute all of our dealings and causes us to overreact and to underreact, to avoid, to blame or deny, to insult or ignore. As we read just a few moments ago, one of the most common and obvious ways this tends to show up in our life is hypocritical judgment. So, today, what we want, you thought that Dostoevsky was the cheesy sermon illustration. Today, what we want is to become like a catalytic converter. So this is the, the cheesy illustration I mentioned earlier. So in chemistry, a catalyst is this, some of you will like this, some of you will tune me out. A substance that increases the rate of a chemical reaction without itself undergoing any permanent chemical change. So, catalysts tend to lower the amount of force or heat that is required for a specific chemical change to happen. Um, They help certain compounds along, you might say. But they do all of this without changing themselves. They maintain their own integrity. So, in a catalytic converter, does everybody know what a catalytic converter is? It's on your car, it's underneath, okay. Um, Catalytic converter does this through these three elements, platinum, palladium, and rhodium, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And basically what they do is, you can go to the next slide, Amber, catalytic converters take the polluted air that's coming out of your engine that has nitrous oxide and hydrocarbons and all these other bad things for the environment, and it runs them through this palladium, platinum, and and, uh, rhodium, and through this catalytic process, cleans them, turns them into, uh, what is it, carbon dioxide and some other things. Um, Sam might know, nitrous dioxide, maybe. Um, And then spits them out the other side, cleans them up. And if you don't like the car example, I have another cheesy one. This one's for US. We all We have similar processes that go on in our body, through our liver or perhaps our kidney. Um, and in those scenarios, the catalysts are enzymes where they clean out our blood or um, our bile or other things in our body. But the point remains the same. Bad stuff in, good stuff out is the idea. Of course, the metaphor breaks down at a certain point because unlike catalysts, In our dealings with people, and with God, we actually do change in certain ways. Often, sometimes in profound ways, in fact. However, our hope should be that there is some core of our identity as who we are, as those born again, redeemed in Christ. Something of who we are as his children should remain intact when we find ourselves in difficult relationships. When we find ourselves dealing with our anxiety, the anxiety of others, and the tension between us. So when we find ourselves in a difficult relationship, trying to navigate the anxiety within us, the anxiety within them, and the anxiety between us, how do we maintain our most fundamental identity as someone redeemed by the blood of Jesus, reborn into the kingdom of God? How do we clear the air, so to speak? How can you and I become the kind of people who no longer share or spread our own anxiety, our own dis-ease, and unaddressed motives, and unacknowledged desires. Moreover, how can we start to become the kind of people who can actually contribute to the reduction of anxiety in other people? How can we become a non-anxious presence which changes the atmosphere and lessens the anxiety in the room? How can we become the kind of person which God works in and through to make life whole and holy, not only for ourselves, but for others? How do we become catalysts for the good, for shalom, peace? God's kingdom come, here and now, in our very midst. I actually think today's scripture passage, um, which Sam read for us just a moment ago, actually has a lot to say. It may not seem like it on the face, on his face, but in fact, I think it does give us several key principles. Jesus' teaching is quite insightful, um, truly profound wisdom. um, And when it comes to this whole notion of um, changing the atmosphere, being a catalyst or a change agent for the good, um, I think there's probably some indispensable and non-negotiable ideas in what Jesus has to say here in, in this specific section of the Sermon on the Mount, perhaps. And if you still aren't convinced that Jesus' Sermon um, on the Mount has anything whatsoever to do with anxiety or what's going on just under the surface, um, or if this just somehow uh, doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything that Jesus says, um, don't take it from, from me or from Jeremy even for that matter, um, although he's probably a better source than I am. Um, Dallas Willard says in his book The Divine Conspiracy, which is basically his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, Jesus looks outward to the cosmos and to the sweep of human history before and after. He tells us in this sermon, We have no need to be anxious, for there is a divine life, the true home of the soul, that we can enter simply by placing our confidence in him, becoming his friend, and conspiring with him to subvert evil with good. And so when Jesus teaches on the blessed life in the Beatitudes, on anger, on why we tend to exaggerate and tell false things, or why we retaliate and require vengeance, or why we want things inordinately, or why we pray in front of others. He's talking about reasons. These are the manifestations of things that are happening just below the skin. And we've been calling that anxiety. So if you haven't already um, done so, you're welcome to turn with me to chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Um, and if you were to do that, you don't have to. If you were to do that, you would notice in your Bible, um, there's probably a few section headings there. You might have one that says uh, judging others or not judging others. You might have one that says um, casting pearls. You might have one that says ask, seek, not. There'll be these different you know, page breaks or section breaks. You might have one that says the golden rule, perhaps, and that may be a bit misleading because um, as Sam read it just a few moments ago, I don't know, did anybody wonder why all those verses were like next to each other? Like what does any of that have to do with anything or with itself, so to speak? It's got the stuff about pearls and pigs in the middle. It seems like it's got this, you know, rather famous, in fact, passage about ask, seek, knock, which we assume probably has to do with prayer. And it just seems like what does this all have to do with each other? But if we were to look at this in its entirety, and you would notice that the first verse says, judge not, lest you be judged, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And in verse 12, we get the golden rule. So, whatever you want others to do for you, do also to them. These are the verses that bookend this passage of Scripture. And so if you think about it, these are actually the same idea, just kind of rephrased. Use the same measure, do unto others as you would have them do. And so in fact, um, it was common common practice uh, in Jewish teaching to do something like this, to say something, say some more stuff, and then restate the original idea in a different way. So what I'm suggesting, and what many scholars suggest, um, is that we need to try to think about how it is that all these verses, Matthew 7, 1 through 12, how do they relate to each other? What's going on here, and what is Jesus getting at? And before we jump into the actual text again, I've got one more kind of caveat I want to bring to the table. Um, I also want us to rather be rather concrete about what we're talking about here. More specifically, who we are talking about. I think my tendency, maybe it doesn't apply to you, but my tendency is when I read, you know, do not judge others, use a measure, I immediately kind of go to judging people that are kind of far off, if that makes sense. And I kind of think about people in the abstract. I, I immediately go, well, I judge this kind of person. You know, there's this type of person that when I run across them in everyday life, I tend to judge them or something. Well, that's not entirely bad at all. Um, it's bad to judge them. It's not bad to think about the text that way. I do think this tendency to think about judgment in the context of unfamiliar relationships is itself probably a symptom of our anxiety. because. Really, these loose associations with these abstracted types of people aren't really relationships anyways. And that's kind of what we're trying to discuss. So, we would rather not turn our attention towards people we actually know. We'd rather not turn our attention towards people we're actually in relationship with, perhaps very close and intimate relationship, because we know um, what we might find there, and it might make us a bit uncomfortable. But for for today, I actually want us to consider this portion of scripture and apply it to specifically and explicitly those most intimate, close, and um, familiar relationships. Relationships kind of by definition involve proximity, time, history, story, attention, familiarity, shared life, common experience, and hopefully mutual concern for one another. And this, I suggest to you, is actually the context of Jesus' words here in Matthew 7. He is thinking specifically about close, intimate, familiar relationships. I mean, just think of some of the nouns that he uses here. Brother, a father and son relationship, and domestic animals. I mean, for better lack of a better way to talk about it. He's thinking about household relationships. <clears throat> um, yeah, so i invite you as we consider this text together perhaps think about how you interact and relate to maybe a spouse maybe a parent maybe one of your children maybe a sibling or a close friend and if you really stop and think about it these i mean at least this is the case for me these are the places where we tend to judge people the most harshly and give them the most criticism and it's not always necessarily from like some place of you know, uh, maliciousness necessarily. Oftentimes, our efforts to take the speck out of someone's eye comes from a place of profound concern and love and care. Usually stems from the fact that we really, really do care about this person, and we want what's best for them. We want to help. We see something in them. We don't like what we see. We think they need our help. Sorry, y'all. I've had a... Bit of a cold the last week so so we go about helping and as Jesus tells us this is exactly where things start to get a bit messy because it is often in the very act of our trying to help that all we do is contribute to more of the same we bring our anxiety and we catch a bit of theirs so let's just reverse engineer the whole thing beginning not with do not judge in verse one but let's skip all the way ahead to verse 12, where Jesus says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. By the way, that word so there, um, you could also translate that therefore if you wanted to. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you. And so that should just be a clue to us that whatever he just said prior obviously has something to do with what he's about to say. This is our goal, our end all our efforts to help others to remove their specs as it were has to take this shape and conform to this principle but i wonder how many of us have actually thought about what this what this means or what this would mean like how what does it mean to actually answer this question how do you wish others would treat you cuz how you answer this question i think will be rather revealing for example what if you answered it this way I wish other people would just leave me alone. I wish my husband, or my wife, or my parent, or my sister or roommate, or that close friend that I've known forever would just please stop trying to help me with all of my problems. Because I don't want their help, nor do I need it. What if that's how you answer? Does that mean you've successfully achieved or accomplished whatever it is that Jesus has in mind here? I think. Any one of us would agree that that kind of answer just feels a bit unsatisfying. And in fact, is probably indicative of a heart that has become a bit too proud. Because let's face it, when we're honest with ourselves, we all need a bit of help. And if you don't think you do, well, we're back to the problem of the underground man. You're rather confused, having a heart so impenetrable that it can't be told it is ever wrong or off, or missing something that cannot tolerate even the most loving and, t- and kind correction, and that is a dangerous place to be. How well do you react when someone tries to point out your flaws? Just food for thought. Besides, I guess now would be a good time to remind you that when Jesus starts talking about having logs in our eyes, what he's talking about are those aspects of ourselves which both literally and figuratively we can't see. They are, by definition, blind spots. And by definition, you can't see a blind spot. Thus, you actually require someone else to point them out to you. There is no other way. So who in your life, just um, by survey or you know, take inventory, who in your life is actually positioned to know your blind spots? Typically, it's going to be someone who knows you extremely well, who has known you probably for a while, who you've known probably for a while, Um, someone perhaps where you will let your guard down, lower your defenses, someone like a spouse, sibling, parent, or longtime friend. And so, again, I think these are the kinds of relationships we ought to think about when we consider how we wish that others would treat us. So back to verse one, and I think we're gonna we'll, we'll kind of gather together three principles in the text, and then um, we'll we'll come to a conclusion. But the first of those principles is perspective, and this is gonna be from verse one, where Jesus says, "Do not judge." When Jesus says, "Do not judge," he does not mean that we are no longer to identify or decide or discern between right and wrong actions of others. Obviously, the actual sense of the word. Um, here isn't like, don't ever you know, discern when something bad is happening or when someone is doing something wrong. The actual sense is meant something like contempt or condemnation. He means, do not reduce your view of this person to someone who either deserves your complete indifference or your absolute indignation. Because in either case, you, you're lacking perspective. In other words, do not lose your ability to see the entire person Because newsflash, human beings are a complicated mess. We all have history, pathologies, stories, woundedness, hurts and past trauma. So do not lose your capacity to see this other person in their entirety. If you remember what Jeremy said last week about anxiety as a symptom of only seeing the part and not the whole, we're kind of in that domain again. In a way, this is kind of what Jesus means here don't see only this other person's speck but rather keep your attention on them as a whole person in other words don't lose perspective is this someone you love is this someone you care about then should that mean the measure of your shouldn't that be the measure of your affection for them why do you refuse to see anything other than this speck and besides it's probably always been there They're not showing you any new information. You're probably just paying attention for the first time to that thing. It's probably always been there. You have just chose to look at something else before, which allowed you to continue to see this whole person, rather than the inconvenience and agitation they now seem to be. Which brings us to what I think is a striking and potentially surprising kind of second point about this whole talk of judgment. In our attempts to take the speck from someone we care about, we often are not even looking in the right direction in the first place. One of the central themes themes we've explored this fall while looking at the Sermon on the Mount is this, and hopefully this has been kind of made clear over the last couple of weeks, but this anxiety that we're talking about that wells up within us, just below the surface. These difficulties we face when encountering the anxiety of others, the problems and the struggles we have within our most intimate and closest relationships, they do not arise or begin with the other person. The reason that our head spins, or our gut tightens, or our heart begins to race, is something going on within me. In the final analysis, the issue is with me. As one theologian and psychologist put it, how could you go about creating a happy, loving, peaceful world by learning a simple, beautiful, but sometimes painful art called looking. Every time you find yourself irritated or angry with someone, look into uh, the cause. Yeah, look at uh, the one to look at is not that person, but yourself. The cause of my irritation is not in this person, but in me. Look into the very real possibility that the reason why this person's defects annoy you is that you have them yourself. This is very close to the definition of hypocrisy, the very thing Jesus is warning us about. Judging another for something wrong with you. We'll have more to say about this a bit later. um, But for now, if we ever hope to become a non-anxious change agent or a catalyst for the good of others, um, we at least begin by gaining some perspective about ourselves, about the other. And as we'll see as we go along, about God and his involvement in the middle of all of this. So the next kind of principle I think we might be able to pick up if we keep following along in the verses is patience, allowing space. If you notice after you get to the whole thing about, you know, um, first remove the log from your eye, and then you can take the speck out of your brother's eye, then you have this weird verse in the middle about pigs and pearls and giving dogs what is holy, and it's just kind of this enigmatic verse that I think sometimes a lot of us are confused about. What is this whole dogs and pigs business? What does this mean? I think the first thing we should probably point out is that it is much less about the dogs and the pigs than it is about the pearl pushers and the what I'm calling the holy harriers. It's kind of a mouthful, but here's what I mean. Jesus' main issue here, the point of this little two-phrase parable um, is this. Don't force things on people, they simply can't handle or don't want. Don't force ways of life on people that they are not ready to accept, whether through maturity or uh, ignorance or age or whatever the case may be. Don't berate people or nag them with your wisdom and your good advice when they are clearly not in a position or ready to change, because all this does is harden their hearts even further, to the point where eventually they will turn on you and attack you and eat you. The point is not that the pearl is wasted on this person, but that this person is just simply not helped by it. If we truly cared about this person, we would want to give them something that would actually help them, that they could actually hear and receive. that would actually nourish their soul so that it might actually bring about positive change. But pearls don't nourish pigs, and dogs can't live off communion bread and wine yet we think that just because our biblical wisdom and our godly advice is just what this other person needs to hear again and again and again meanwhile what is actually happening this other person, we are turning them against us because we have become tone deaf to what is actually going on not only within them but between us in the relationship we've exerted a power dynamic perhaps where there shouldn't be one You see how this kind of naturally connects with the whole judgment conversation that came prior? If we ever hope to gain perspective about ourselves and about this other person and what God might be doing in this situation, we have to be patient. We can't rush the work that God is doing just because we ourselves are uncomfortable and anxious in front of this other person's shortcomings. Dallas Willard says it better than I could. This is kind of a long quote, but we'll get through it. What a picture this is of our efforts to correct and control others by pouring our good things, often truly precious things, upon them. Things they nevertheless simply cannot ingest and use to nourish themselves. Often we do not even listen to them. We just know without listening. Our good intentions make little difference. Now notice what he says next and how it kind of, again, connects back to the whole notion of judgment and hypocrisy. Frankly, our pearls are often often offered with a certain superiority of bearing that keeps us from paying attention to those we are trying to help. We have solutions. That should be enough, right? Very quickly, some contempt, impatience, anger, and even condemnation slips into our offer. We wouldn't even be offering them such pearls if our heart were not right, right? Unfortunately, we just might. It has been done. And if you were to survey your life, you would probably admit you've done it too. I know I have. My experience is just this. Most likely, we are simply tired of having to deal with this other person and their shortcomings. So we just want to be rid of it already. Our poor pushing and our holy harassment is really for us, not them. It's for me. It is a reaction to something going on within me. Rather than actually seeing this other person and attending to what they actually need and will actually benefit from, I grow impatient and I rush ahead, insisting that they magically transform before my very eyes. Grow up already. Get it together. Cut it out. Sometimes we ask a person to reprogram an entire life's worth of habit and routine, value systems and beliefs, deeply embedded in Uh, things so deep within who they are as a person in an instant. And not because we are generally concerned about them but because they are causing something to well up within me that I don't like, that makes me feel uncomfortable, makes me anxious. Willard again, just for good measure, What we're actually doing with our proper condemnations and our wonderful solutions, more often than not, is taking others out of their own responsibility and out of God's hands and trying to bring them under our control. And usually, we ourselves do not consciously intend it. We are perhaps filled with anxiety about the ones we care for, but we are always to respect other people as spiritual beings who are responsible themselves before God alone for the course they choose to take of their own free will. It is the only way that God can get the kind of personal beings that he desires for his eternal purposes. Moving on, final kind of principle we might draw from this. And yes, they all start with P's. We have three principles. They all begin with a P. The last one is presence and presence. You recall the verse, right? If your father in heaven gives you good gifts. Or if you give good gifts, how much more will your father give you good gifts? Um, But what is this gift? Here we come to, I think, the most fundamental aspect of becoming a person who neither catches nor shares their anxiety. This is probably the most difficult and the most, in my mind, kind of ambiguous and enigmatic part of this whole thing as I understand it. Um, By the way, I don't think I said this at the beginning. I should, should have said it. I'll say it now. None of this is to suggest that I have any of this figured out, by the way. So um, hopefully, that probably goes without saying. That's just my anxiety welling up now, trying to put on a face for you all, I suppose. But um, certainly don't think I have this figured out whatsoever. Um, But of these three, this one certainly seems the most vague in my mind at this moment. But um, This famous ask, seek, knock verse. I think we're accustomed to hearing this. And usually we do so almost exclusively with prayer in mind. And this, of course, isn't wrong per se, but it does kind of fail to point out the very real connection that these verses have with those that surround it. Because remember, it's only right after this section on asking, seeking, knocking that God or that Jesus gives us the do unto others as you would want them to do to you. So we're still talking about immediate, intimate close, domestic relationships with other people. As Willard will point out, he says it pretty plainly, the ask-seek-knock teaching first applies to our approach to the other, to other people, not to prayer to God. And that's kind of provocative, I suppose. Um, Probably intentionally so, but to make a point. The reality is that our prayerful posture towards God and our patient, attentive presence towards other people they form kind of like a, united, a unified whole. They really can't be separated from one another in any meaningful way when they are working together, when they are integrated into a healthy, relational life. Because these two relationships, with God on the one hand, with other people on the other, are always intimately bound up with each other. They always inform and influence each other, and sometimes in surprising ways. When it comes to strictly human relationships, think about it, even Jesus himself seemed to practice this principle principle in his relationships. He was constantly asking people questions. What do you want me to do for you? Mark 10.51. He literally said he came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19.10. And he tells the church at Laodicea, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus he had perspective, certainly. He says his, his, at one point in the Gospels, it says his face was set. He knew who he was and what he was here to do. He came to seek and save. He was patient. He still is patient. But he's gentle, not forceful. He stands at the door, he knocks, and he'll come in to whoever opens it. So think about how this ask-seek-knock principle might transform your interactions within perhaps a difficult relationship. It's hard to judge or condemn people when we find ourselves asking them questions, trying to get some perspective. We'll find it hard to become impatient with others when we realize that we, too, are searching for a solution to our shared dispute with them, not against them or in spite of them, not even for them. But together, we're looking for an answer to our problems. If we are seeking together a remedy for our relational tension, Jesus says we will indeed find it. And when we approach even the most difficult relationships in our lives in this way, with gentleness, knocking, as it were, we will be pleasantly surprised as the door opens to us. In other words, when we no longer barge in like Kramer from Seinfeld, we will find that this other person actually welcomes our help and our care for them, that they actually do want to repair this relationship and rebuild what has been damaged between us. What we ultimately discover if we take Jesus seriously here is that we can miraculously, in fact, become present to another person with our whole self. We can actually become present to this other person and, most importantly, to what God is doing in them, in us, between us, in this moment. And this sequence is actually rather important um, because it's only really after we can be present to this other person who's in front of us, that we can become free to actually pray for them in a way um, that is meaningful and loving and kind, rather than just simply complain to God about them. Furthermore, the gift of presence completely revolutionizes the way we interact with one another, especially because we learn to notice and pay attention to Jesus with us and for us here and now. The gift of presence is that we receive... The Lord Himself. You realize that He is actually working in this other person, between you, between the two of you, in your relationship, all around you, and yes, even in you. Because in asking, seeking, and knocking, we learn that our Lord Himself meets us in our need, even if we don't see it in this other person just yet we find that he is actually working on the anxiety within me and graciously healing and restoring all that is broken in me that has caused me to be so blindly judgmental, impatient and controlling, forceful and manipulative in the first place. Because at root, these are my issues and they have nothing to do with this other person. And it is with this awareness that we are given the gift of perspective and patience and presence and and radically reoriented towards the kingdom of God. It reminds me of what we've quoted several times over the last year or so, Jeremy has anyways, but this thing from Julian Norwich. I look at God, I look at you, I keep looking at God. Asking, seeking, knocking, the gentle, non-forceful approach towards even the most difficult relationships, as well as our prayerful disposition towards God in prayer. All of this together now brings us back to where we began with the quote from Steve Kuss about differentiation. And hopefully, you've pieced some of it together by now, but let's just remind ourselves what we said. Differentiation is the ability to be fully yourself, while being fully connected to people. That is, fully present. It is gaining clarity and perspective on where I end and the other begins. A differentiated person allows space patience between herself and another, even when that other person is highly anxious or asking for rescue. The differentiated person is clear and has perspective on her own values and convictions and is not easily swayed from them. And this is why I mentioned differentiation at the beginning of our time and why I gave you a, what I thought was a cheesy sermon illustration with a catalytic converter and the liver I think Jeremy talked about a gallbladder a couple weeks ago. Do y'all remember that? So I thought a liver was certainly a step up from that. But um, good news is you will remember it. I mean, I hope so anyway, so that's good. Um, only the differentiated person can be a non-forceful, low-friction, non-anxious presence for the good of those around them, especially those that they're in close, intimate relationship with, those whom they love. They are neither codependent or aloof. They're not entangled or absent. They are present, patient, and can clearly see all that God is at work doing. Dallas Willard for the win. As long as I am condemning my friends and relatives, judging them, or pushing my pearls of wisdom on them, yeah, um, I am their problem, they have to respond to me. And that usually leads to their judging me right back. We get into process theory here. The system just repeats itself. But if I can back away, maintaining a sensitive and non-manipulative presence, differentiation, if I can listen, they do not have to protect themselves from me, and they can begin to open up to kingdom life. Because I am no longer condemning, judging, or demonizing them, genuine communication and real sharing of hearts becomes an attractive possibility. This is what all of us would want in our most intimate and most difficult relationships. In closing now, I <clears throat> just want to draw your attention to the end of Jesus' life. There's a very interesting scene there. And we, I think we overlook it sometimes. I mean, it's famous. We all know what Jesus says from the cross. I, I think most of us do. Jesus looks at those who are crucifying him. He's on the cross. He looks at them. And then he looks at God, and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So even in his most desperate and agonizing moment, in the midst of what had to be unbearable pain and suffering, at the hands of the very people that he was there to help, to rescue, to save, Jesus was still able to see clearly. Clearly. He had his perspective. He remained patient. He was present enough to himself and to God. He was present enough to pray for the very people who were killing him, to forgive them and to see the whole person, to continue to see them in their need, in the need that he sought to meet. He continued to ask the Father for, on their behalf. I think we learn a lot about what it means to be present to others in the midst of anxiety in just that one little phrase. So that now, thanks to him, in that moment, his body was broken. His blood was poured out. Thanks to him, We have access to his life, and we are caught up in all that he is doing. Here on earth, as it is in heaven, may we each grow in our ability to remain fully present to him and to that reality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are present to us. We thank you for your patience with us. Lord, we thank you that... um, We thank you for your son, who teaches us what it means to live a fully human life, shows us how to love and care for those whom we love and care for. Lord, help us, show us um, new ways of being human so that we might um, bring about good um, in the midst of pain, that we might be change agents for the good. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.